Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hello in the room and hello online. Uh, to those around Sheffield watching from home and those further afield, maybe as far as Brighton, who knows. Um, you're very welcome uh, to be here. I'd like to add my welcome to you all. It's great to uh, see us uh, breaking ground in something new and doing something a bit different. Uh, I'll just keep going. I'm sure the guys will sort out the booming. So uh, today we're going to be continuing our series in the Gospel of John. So if you want to be opening your Bibles and turning to John chapter 2, we'll be reading uh, from there in a moment. So far, Dan kicked us off the first week with a, a movie trailer, the, the prologue where John lays out the big picture, Jesus Christ, the Word became flesh, the only Son of God who came bringing grace and truth, the hero of the story, in case there was any doubt as to who we're here to talk about today. And then last week, Jesus, uh, sorry, Rich with his signpost, uh, we looked at John the Baptist uh, pointing to Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus not pointing to anybody else, because he is the Messiah. Uh, an ordinary folk began to follow him, recognizing him as the son of God. So that's where we're up to in the story. We're now going to cut to a new scene in chapter two. Uh, we've got some great action. We've got some new characters. So let's read that together. I'm going to just read the first part of it for the moment. Okay, so chapter two. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus, Jesus's mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Just uh, kind of before we, we properly start and get into this, I just, uh, wine here is very clearly talked about uh, as a good thing. Uh, it's, and, 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 and the running out of it at this wedding is, is clearly talked about as a problem. Um, wine, wine is given to us as a gift to be received with thanks and enjoyed uh, as it's handled with appropriate care. But as with many things, wine, uh, other alcohol, can become a problem. It can become an idol in our lives. And an unhealthy relationship can develop with it. Uh, we're designed to, uh, to, 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 get all we, to find all we need in Christ, in Christ alone. But temptation can come to look elsewhere, and uh, we can find ourselves going to other things, such as alcohol, for, for comfort, or perhaps just to numb some pain. That relationship can deepen into a dependency, a, a psychological or physical dependency. And it's not just wine or other alcohol that can become idols or false comforts in our life. Uh, and we need a saviour. We need the Holy Spirit to cause us to walk in true freedom. The knock-on impact uh, of, of alcohol abuse, uh, uh, damage to, uh, to health and life of individuals, to their families, to friends and to society is vast and terrible. And I realise that this is a big subject about which much more could be said. But it's not the main point of this passage. So 
I'm going to leave that there. But I, I just felt it was not possible to, to get into this story without just flagging up this, uh, this, uh, this slight problem uh, as we look at this. Um, I, also, so I could remind you that there's no problem or sin or habit or idol that's beyond God's help and God's restoration. Uh, we've already heard uh, in, in what's come through and what we've sung uh, about the restorative work that God does. If, you're, if you know you're, you're flirting with misusing alcohol, or you know you've got a deeper issue with it, my encouragement to you is to turn firstly to Jesus, to see him as your source of hope and help. As Paul says, do not get drunk on wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. We encourage you also to reach out and talk to someone about accessing other support. I hope that doesn't feel too heavy, but I just didn't think we could move past that as we start talking about this, uh, this celebrating, uh, as we're going to see, the, the creation of wonderful wine. A bit of context we could also have helpfully in mind as we start to consider this miraculous event that we're going to be looking at today is that we're at a time when only a very few folk, probably mostly Jews, have recognised that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. The whole nation will know uh, because they've been uh, uh, waiting a long time uh, for, for, for Jesus to come, for, for a Messiah to come. Uh, they'll have been taught about it. Uh, um, maybe at the same time, they'll have been preoccupied with daily life. As generations came and went like us, they'll have been used to things being sort of as they are, kind of just their normal. Like us, there have been a variety of characters, personalities, dispositions, all in various stages of life and various states of health. And like us, some of them will be quick to recognise Jesus and jump in and follow him. Others might take a bit longer to consider and be convinced before making their clear decision to follow or not. And at whatever speed, these first century Jews needed their eyes opening and they needed to go through this process of realisation of change. It's changing their hearts, it's changing their minds, it's changing their souls. They needed understanding, they needed to take a step of faith and accept that this Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is leading them through, graciously, step by step, sign by sign, teaching by teaching, in person by person. And here we're going to see different ones grasping a bit more understanding of Jesus as he reveals a bit more of who he is, and so they believe with a deeper conviction. So if you think you've got an understanding of something of Jesus, but not everything yet, then you're in good company, I imagine, in this room, as well as in this passage. So what's happening here? Jesus and some of his family and friends were at a wedding together. Uh, feels a bit wrong to me that we don't even know whose wedding it is, but, uh, but everyone remembers it because it was the one where the wine ran out. On You've Been Framed, they often have a wedding section, don't they, where you see uh, the cameras are rolling, so there's always lots of uh, recording of it, and uh, you'll see maybe a wedding party lined up on a wooden jetty, and it collapses and they all go in the water, or uh, you see the, the, the person fainting in the middle of the vows. Uh, and, and you kind of get this both this sort of dual reaction, don't you, of uh, 
oh no, that's terrible, and that's hilarious. Um, I know, I do anyway. Um, but that can be how the wedding was remembered, the one where uh, that happened. Uh, and that was kind of the case here, uh, it, except this is much more serious, uh, because in the culture at the time, running out of hospitality like that would have been a matter of deep shame to families. The, the, oh no, that's terrible part, would definitely have been there, but there would have been no, that's hilarious, no one would be thinking that. Now this account would not have even spread without the problem of the wine running out. Um, and this was, uh, wasn't it a time where you could just, you know, phone up for a delivery, put it on the credit card, a bunch of wine turns up in an hour. Uh, there, was no, there was no hope of that. The, the, the host of this wedding was facing social embarrassment. They were facing shame. Uh, you know, if there'd been social media, it would have been all over it. It would have been breaking news. Their shame would have been kind of the whole story, and that would have been it. I'm going to come back to that. Then Mary points out to Jesus, the next part there, we see Mary pointing out to Jesus, they've run out of wine. Uh, and Jesus seems a little defensive. Uh, yeah, we could probably suspect that he knew this was going to happen. Jesus follows that up with this slightly cryptic statement about his hour having not yet come. Uh, and then, then mum tells the servants that Jesus is now in charge. There's so much happening in just a few short words. Um, and we'll look at that interaction a little bit more. But I just want to ask the, first, the question first. What have we found out about Jesus so far? And I want to draw our attention to the simple fact that Jesus is there. He's there at an everyday wedding. Okay, weddings aren't every day, but you know what I mean. It's a regular event. It's within the community. It's amongst the people. Uh, Jesus went to social events. There we go. Jesus didn't just come out on the Sabbath. He was about every day. Only a few guests there would have actually realized that the Messiah was amongst them at this point. Yet he was. There he was with them. He'd come down, he left heaven, he'd come to live on earth, and having come that far, he didn't hide in a monastery or a fort. He lived amongst people in everyday domestic life. He's there at parties, not just in temples. He's continuing to reveal himself to more and more people as a God of relationship, of a, a God of connection, a God who crosses the divide to bring us home, a God who comes to find us, Emmanuel. God with us. And this is what those, some of those at the wedding would have experienced in that moment. Jesus hanging out with his family and friends, drawing people in. We can imagine his character just flowing out of who he was while he was there, gentle and kind, joyful, peaceful, self-controlled with the wine. God wants to be involved in our celebrations. He wants to be involved in our weddings. As well as walking with us through our grieving and our painful times, as Susie was helping draw our attention to, we're not to think of him as distant. He's closer than you probably realise. And as we know, on Saturday, at Will and Jessica's wedding, uh, I, I bet this passage will get a mention. Uh, I'm sure Dan will draw our attention to the fact that Jesus, being present at this wedding, he was also affirming marriage itself, uh, which we, we can pick, learn from this pa passage. One man, one woman, entering an exclusive and covenant relationship unto death and becoming one. But how do different people respond? Uh, in particular, 
in this bit, Mary. Uh, now, we know that Mary knows Jesus. Of course she does. She was his mother. But what's going on with Mary in this weird interaction? Mary tells Jesus that the wine has run out, and he re- reacts with this kind of, woman, what is that between us? Well, why do you involve me? Now, much ink has been spilt. I found out uh, recently that uh, whether calling his mum woman makes it a strong rebuke, or whether it's just a mild rebuke, whether it's no rebuke at all. Um, he uses the same word when, when saying goodbye to her from the cross. Woman, he says, uh, talking at, uh, uh, to, about John being her son now. And, and so that suggests to me it's not much of a rebuke at all. But he certainly seems to push back in some way with this question about why should I get involved or, or, or what's that between us? I did wonder for a moment if he was uh, annoyed that she was telling him what to do when he already was planning to do it. I don't know if you know that experience. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to spouses here. I'm going to children. You know, children, when you're thinking, uh, oh, tea's nearly finished. I know what I'll need doing next. Clear the table, pack the dishwasher. I'm going to volunteer for that. I'm going to show my maturity. I'm going to show my servant-heartedness, and I'm going to be first to volunteer for that privilege of serving the family in that way. I know you think like that, kids. I know that's normally what's on your mind as you're coming to the end of dinner. I know there's no kind of, you know, competing to do the least or trying to hide away or making some excuse. I know you don't do that, that's a, that and that's good that you don't. Um, um, but then, then a parent, just before, you, just before you put your hand, just before you say, a parent says to you, right, it's your turn to do the washing up. And in that moment, it all evaporates. Your opportunity disappears. And you're just left kind of feeling told off, really. But then I thought, that's probably not how Jesus uh, felt. I'm sure uh, he isn't feeling under real pressure just because his mum mentions there's no wine left. But what I could imagine that he's feeling sort of a pressure that, that once he starts the ball rolling on revealing who he is, He knows where that will lead. He knows that if you give 200 people a glass of wine, that it's going to get talked about. It's going to get passed on. So there'll be no turning back. And he knows where that road goes. He knows that that road goes via betrayal. He knows he's going to get beaten. And he knows he's going to have to go through the cross. Later he uses the same expression about his hour coming when he's talking to his father in Gethsemane about the time for his death being near. So again there is debate as to whether the reference to my hour here is about it's not my time to start my public ministry or it's not my time to end it on the cross. But the two are inextricably linked, aren't they? So perhaps for him it's one and essentially one of the same thing. So this idea of starting his ministry fixes in his mind how it will end. And maybe that feels like a bit of pressure. Go back to Mary. Perhaps we see in her a, a good intention there, such an eagerness. Um, 
But based on Jesus pushing back, maybe there's also a, a bit of overstepping as well. Looking at this and thinking about this this week just prompted me to ask myself, is that what was going on with Mary? And am, 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 am I like that sometimes? I could be so keen to see problems solved, to see improvement in others, to see lives live better, that I can rush ahead of Jesus and try and tell people the answer. I tell them how to think or feel or what they should or shouldn't do. Rather than pointing them to Jesus, trusting them to him, encouraging them to pray their own prayers to the one who knows what we need before we ask him. To be that signpost to Jesus, not attempt to drive results and make things happen based on my own frustrated motives. And do my prayers too often follow the pattern of sounding like instructions for God? He should do what I think. How often are they the fragrant offering of repentance, humility, submission, an invitation for your kingdom to come and your will to be done, like he taught us to pray? Or, not my will, Lord, but yours, as he prayed himself. Forgive me for just having that moment of self-reflection in front of you there, but maybe it might help you. Ultimately, we need to, I think we need to accept that Mary knew something more than others. She'd been storing things in her heart for many years now. She'd already fully believed, and she's pointing to Jesus. And we get the sense that Mary would have done whatever Jesus would have told her. But she rightly assumes that the servants are going to be the ones helping with the drinks rather than her. Like John the Baptist last week, Jesus, that Mary is pointing to Jesus. She says, do whatever he tells you, which is an instruction that rings through the ages and which we would all do well to use as a foundation for life. I'm thinking of making some bracelets with DWJTY embroidered into them. What do you think? Do you think it'll catch on? Anyway, let's pick up the story in verse 6. Glasses. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheap wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of these signs, of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and the disciples believed in him. So despite this initial seeming reluctance, Jesus uh, cracks on. There he goes. He, he selects some everyday things, some water jars, uh, some water. He performs a powerful miracle, something extraordinary. He transforms these six massive jars of water into top-quality wine. Uh, estimates vary, but maybe 750 bottles of it. Uh, 
And then the master of the banquet, we see, is the one that, that kind of calls it. He says, he's the one that says, this is the best wine. He sounds to me like kind of the equivalent of a modern-day wedding planner. I don't know, is that a... Uh, uh, they're checking everything's all working and everything's all okay. Uh, but he's certainly qualified, and uh, he's an independent witness. Uh, Jesus wasn't using smoke or mirrors or a plant. Uh, he's, he's, his, his miracles are genuine. They are that, genuine miracles, ruling over creation as he does and performing instant transformations. Uh, we can simply get excited about this just being a fantastic miracle. And another thing I love about this one is that, that every guest who drank the wine, who had a glass of it, experienced this miracle. I kind of became living witnesses to it. 200-odd people tasted it, experienced its quality. I mean, when you get two or three people uh, saying, oh, I tasted this you know, with their own tongue, tasted this, it was, it was lovely, you should try it. Uh, you're going to believe it, aren't you? Uh, 200 people saying the same thing. No wonder this account was passed on. So as well as just being totally amazed, I guess it would have raised for them some big questions, wouldn't it? Uh, maybe it does for us. If Jesus can do that, what else can he do? And more importantly, who is he? This is all part of Jesus revealing his identity. Uh, and so, so what... Did, so what did, what did this miracle reveal about Jesus to those who were at the wedding? Well, it would have been laced with symbolic meaning for the Jews, uh, which is perhaps why John opts to call it not just a miracle, but a sign. We see in verse 11 there, just where we finished, that, uh, uh, that, that this, he describes it as the first sign. And I can tell you that John goes on to record seven signs that Jesus did to reveal who he was to those around him. Uh, and there are also lots of other accounts of events and things he said in there as well. Um, and of course, most significantly, the climax of the story where we read uh, witness to Jesus' death and resurrection. And then later on in John, he comes to say to chapter 20, verse 30, where he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So these seven are just a sample. This is just a starter. Uh, and this one's the first and Jesus here reveals himself not only as the one who is with us, but we also discover now that he is the one who takes away our shame. I'm so grateful to Chris for uh, bringing what God prompted him to this morning. Uh, I found that an encouraging confirmation that God wants to speak to us as a people this morning and say he is the one who takes away our shame. We saw earlier about the shame the families were facing, running out of, running out of wine at a wedding, a disaster in their case, in their scenario. Um, so in performing this miracle, Jesus took away the shame of the host and of the whole wedding party. Everything is transformed. Jesus revealed himself right here, right at the beginning of his ministry, his first sign as the one who takes away our shame. And of course, it points to what he would do fully three years later for all of us. If we look at Hebrews 12 and verse 2, it says there, he endured the cross, scorning his shame. That's where it happened. He took our shame for us on the cross. 
And then we can look at something Peter says in 1 Peter 2. And what he's doing, this is after Jesus' death and resurrection, he quotes Isaiah, who said this hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth. And he says, he quotes this, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. From years before Jesus came and years afterwards, talking about that time, and talk about Jesus, talk about him being the one who takes away our shame. So this wedding now is not going to be remembered as the one where the wine ran out. This is going to be remembered as the wedding that had the best wine ever. In addition to Jesus revealing himself as God with us, as we've seen, and as the one who takes away our shame, I'm just going to highlight a third characteristic of our God shining through again. And that is that he is the one who provides. He's Jehovah Jireh. He provides, according to his measure, abundant measure. Whatever the exact numbers you want to consider, the six jars, the number of liters, gallons, 25 gallons, whatever it is per jar. How many guests were there? Maybe 200. How long is a wedding? Maybe a week. Uh, we can be sure that the point being made was that the amount of wine provided was more than enough. Jesus doesn't fall short when he provides. We know he fed 5,000. There were 12 baskets left over. He sent the disciples fishing. The nets are filled to breaking. His storehouses aren't running short. He doesn't have empty shelves. He's not waiting for a delivery. Not our God. In contrast, we can look at their own efforts at producing wine and providing for this wedding. And we see that there was some, but it wasn't enough. The guests thought it was good quality until they tasted something better. How quick we are we can be, to look at our own meagre rations and resources. And how Britishly embarrassed we can get when we look to God and he provides abundantly. How slow we can be to come with belief and ask our Heavenly Father to provide all we need. This also takes us back to Abraham, uh, Genesis 22 that we were looking at recently where Abraham names the place the Lord will provide. God sees to it. It's in his promise. It's in his character. It's one of his names, Jehovah Jireh. So Jesus' first sign being a miracle of provision is entirely in keeping with who he is. The way he does it in quantity and quality reveals to us more of his character. Mary believed that he would, and she was front of the queue to turn to him. And in an age when we constantly hear, it's all down to you, you're on your own, it's your problem, or it's not your problem, it's someone else's problem, someone else should have sorted this out for you. We can easily forget to look to God for all that we need. He provides for all who look to him, for us. Physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. He's always saying, look to me. For Abraham, the reason he was called in that place, 
the law will provide, or the law sees to it, is, is because it's the place where, where God provides a sacrifice to take the place of Abraham's son. For us, he provides his son to take the place of our sacrifices. Not only does he see to it, not only is he the provider, he is, in fact, the provision. Jesus is what we need, and Jesus came. Now, the way he performs this miracle would likely have had significance for those who first uh, who saw it and first heard the account, because the jars he used were ceremonial washing jars. They were part of the old covenant. They were relevant to the old covenant, part of the, uh, the, the cleaning process. Wine that Jesus provides points to a new covenant, a covenant of belief, a covenant of a gift of righteousness, a covenant of honor received as a gift by those that believe, not through a ritual of external ceremonial washing and sacrifice only for the Jews. Jesus is revealing this new covenant by taking something from the old and transforming it into something new. See Jesus beginning to reveal this new covenant. It's just at the beginning of the story still. But we already know it's going to be better than the old one. Let's look at a couple more responses, starting with the servants. Uh, it's very complex, this one. You might struggle to grasp this. Uh, I don't know how quite I'm going to explain it. Let me have a go. The servants... Servants obeyed. There we go. That's one for you there. The servants obeyed. Uh, maybe you might find something in that that you can uh, just get hold of. They obeyed. I mean, it might not have been easy. What did they feel like in that moment? They, they thought, it says in verse 9, that the servants knew where it had come from, and they were told to take this, what they thought, I guess, was water, to the master of the banquet, I don't know, what were they expecting? Maybe they were expecting him to spit it out and throw the cup at them. But they obeyed. And by being obedient, they got to take part in this great miracle. Let's not let disobedience or cynicism hold us back so that we miss out on taking part in what God is doing in our time. And lastly, let's consider how the disciples respond. Uh, going back, going forward, going back forward to John 20, where we previously read that there were lots more signs. Uh, they, would, they just weren't all written down here. He goes on to say in the next verse that these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's what it's all building up to. We cross-reference back to the end of our account in chapter 2 and verse 11, and it says, and his disciples believed in him. God revealing himself, the response is belief. But Chris, you might ask me, they were already with him. They were already referred to as his disciples. Surely that means they already believed in him. Did they go from not believing in him to believing in him? Well, there is ongoing transformation. 
This is good news for us. There is always a greater depth of belief to be found in Jesus. Just like in human relationships, we might say we know someone, but then we discover something we never knew about them and we know them better. And perhaps like me, you sometimes forget something about someone. This happened to me the other day. Uh, I found out that someone I know was born in Nazareth. And I commented on how interesting that was to discover this new and interesting fact. And I went on to joke hilariously that they are wrong when they say nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And then I was reminded that that joke was made at their wedding. And I remembered that I was at that wedding. I remembered that they made that joke there. I was embarrassed, I must admit. Uh, But I'm glad to have been reminded, because now I'm a lot less likely to forget again. I've I've remembered that, partly because of my embarrassment. Um, so, So today, it might be the first time you've considered and seen that the one who turned water into wine is Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the lifter of shame. And if that is you, then today you can become a believer. You can give your life to him, and your shame can be replaced with honour, like the wedding party experienced in this account. But if today, like the disciples, you were already a believer, but you've received or seen a greater revelation, or perhaps just been reminded of a forgotten truth, then the invitation is to respond like Mary, eager for Jesus to act, like the servants, obedient, taking part, or like the disciples, believing in him and following him, or perhaps like all three of the above. We're going to begin to respond if the band want to come up just as I finish. We're going to worship again together. So like his original disciples and as his current disciples, if that's what you are, my prayer is that each of us will believe in him and have life in his name. As we believe that we're going to keep coming and drinking the new wine, knowing God with us, knowing him giving us honour in place of our shame, being filled with the Spirit, And looking to the abundant provision of Jehovah Jireh, not relying on our own resources anymore. You've got an opportunity while we sing uh, to to talk to God, (laughs) to, uh, to respond to him, to ask him what he wants, how he wants you to respond. Ask him what he's saying to you this morning. Ask him what obedience he wants to lead you into. Ask him in what way you can look to him for his provision. Let's worship and then we'll respond.